Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as is up versus down, and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story. People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now I'm in a worst part of Minneapolis in, in the one guy's apartment, in Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. <laughs> and uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And they, before he left, though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise them this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and, they, and help everyone, you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail, I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. And so I'm telling these guys, well, they would quit that day, the next day. Like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense. Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite. Yeah, this is really bad. Give me another line, you know. And and they would they would listen. But all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing and the one guy kicks the other guy, Joe, out of his own apartment and he sits there in a the chair next to me, says, how much you have left? And I had, I don't know, enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days. And it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there. I'm, and they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And, and I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? And all, my buddy, Joe, that he just, he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know. <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he, because he works for, now he's a Christian, he works for my company. And he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeat it, and I get in there, and, and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said, I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And he goes, he goes, give me your phone. He says, you're gonna take, you're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like, think of someone on 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but it times that by five, you know. 
Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because of his parents' divorce. 100%, 100%. Everything in childhood, everything in childhood, trauma, everything affects it, manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare, you know. My mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to, you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the movie theater. And the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs, and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up there, we're 160 feet off the ground, and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen, and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm gonna fall to my death, and my, and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off, so he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, he goes, is that part of the movie, you know? And uh, I did a lot of different things like that. And I know a lot of it was, uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement, even though I, even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble, you know? <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like, that was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs. My roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get C's at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse. I'm out of here. The you know, world's coming to an end, or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go have fun. Why is God? You know, I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going. It's a repeat of high school. These things in my whole thought process. Why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever you want to be? And that bothered me. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought. So he put his attention elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting. And I uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and I ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note. He said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if." If anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, looks like he's, I say, we say Mike telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, and I hear Mike telephone line three and out the back door I went and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return at this point. He's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store and for the owner's son, who was his manager. I had been uh, fired. It was union. I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company yeah. where to make things better. And he, he said the, the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> And uh, anyway, the next day I come in and he's working to me. He says, you've been suspended indefinitely. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? I, I like, like, you know, I didn't realize that you're done, you know. I didn't know what the words meant. And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll see about this. So I went to his dad and he, say, he looked at me. He says, Mike, I'm not, I'm not getting behind you this time. He says, you're destined for bigger things. He says, you're going to look back someday and see this was meant to be. And he says, you can't be a lifer here, even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And uh, I'll never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, while wow, that had to happen, or I might still have been there for years later, you know. But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life. My fifth year reunion with my class, everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families, or they've kept with the same company since high school. In my mind, they were way ahead of me. And it was very, it was bothering me inside. And then it was just uh, going, wow, everybody's ahead of me. And I'm doing stuff to show off. And I'm, you know, I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counter. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just threw it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my, you know, card counter, things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me, you know, so I'm blowing their minds. And so we don't get on the topic of, uh, yeah, how you doing for work? How you doing? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, know, how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there was a very much a driver, and it was like I, there was a lot of. Now it started to be shame, you know. I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed. I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and and uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter. Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction, even though it's hard to, for the addiction to, to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the, the cocaine and then, the, and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay? Even like neighbors, let's give our kids, you know, send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know, this is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast when the cocaine turned into crack. And, and the kids, 
My daughter at that time, when we, we got right when it all kind of blew up, uh, she says, we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. It's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, I eventually lost it all. And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache. But most of these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name, my pillow, and I wrote my pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and, and you know, these logos and I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know, um, but I go, well, where's my pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything and it was because of my pillow got big, everybody took up the my's, but my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over and Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass of water, she, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm gonna invent this pillow. And I, and I realized I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's gonna be made of or what it's gonna do. It's gonna be the best thing ever, I've seen it, and, and this is gonna be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper, she goes, that's really random, Dad, and she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad going to get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my I'd little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, who's now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing. That's what he does now. But he's like nine or 10 years old and every day we'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work and finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything, and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows and I went into the first pillow, I walked into a, it was a bed, bath and beyond, I'll just say the name, in Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change, you're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where, where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your buyer. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody, it was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk, and I had a little sign, a stencil, where I put on family-owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, 
I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did, we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And, but one guy, he came up and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I said, here, and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now kiosk was almost, you know, a complete failure, basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited hearing his, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know? And I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money. And, and uh, so of course I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that Home and Garden Show. But what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind her, it was, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day. So many people after that first day go, this is a miracle. And the same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just, it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days, sold out. I was, and I'm going, wow, I can, this is where I'm going to be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park. We're still there. And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blasé for this story. There were more trials to come. And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer story, as good as any we've done. Where will you hear the rest of the story here on Our American Stories? Turn to the life story of my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. I had this mask on, and probably from when from the divorce from childhood. I always had to have. That's when I got a hold of cocaine. It was so easy. I, everything I did, I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened. It's an unworthiness, and now when I quit all my drugs and everything. That was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time, it was 2000. 
five or six, and this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, um, hey, this uh, host he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the, I've never been so nervous. I was just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, well, if you'd have told me then, oh, you, you don't need all this and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was, home. Interesting with the home shows. Um, you know, I, I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up. They had a reason for me to talk to them. Now, if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs. That was the only, it was like a phenomenon. Now, if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there, I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to, because I wouldn't want to talk to them. You follow me? I wouldn't want to talk to them. So it'd be, when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow, I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with, with the cocaine or without, only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth, I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk, if I'm in the, I'm, and I have to talk to you and you're the next booth over and we're gonna talk about the weather, it's not happening. I'm clamming up, I'm avoiding, I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect where I probably have the social skills of a 12-year-old. The home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow, not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I, would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept if we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch, guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way, you know, I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone. But I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just helped people forever and never got, I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm gonna make millions of dollars. My thought was always, I'm gonna help millions of people. There's a difference. But to reach his fullest potential in helping people, there was just one person that he had to help first. 
himself. It was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis, of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ. An interesting thing happened a week after that um, little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. That's on, and that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then, you know. So it was helping me out. And, and uh, well, that night, it's about 9.30 at night, and the phone rings. And I answer, and, and I'm up doing, you know, of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days. And she says, you know, I, I'm are you the guy i seen on Channel 6. And uh, I said, yeah. She says... Well, she says, God, God, I prayed and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by and another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah, she goes, well, I haven't bought one, and, and, but she said, um, I was going to call and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to, the, to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked to her. I had nothing. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up, same night. And he calls up, and he answers, and he goes, I want to get you the guy on TV. And he was mad. And I go, yeah. He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, um, and I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And, and uh, she ended up buying a pillow though too, <laughs> but, but we, so we prayed. So that day I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, he chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling. And, this, and she said, this window's going to close and God's going to choose someone else. And you're, and, but then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived. You know, addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're gonna get what they want. And when we come back, we're gonna hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought I'm going to help millions of people. And That's a big difference, he said, and it is. 
And of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment, Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series, Mike Lendell's story, the founder of MyPillow. It would get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question on addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's, it's because you're bored. It's not, you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, you know, you're all that, whatever you're doing on the, for the high, it's just masking the pain. So I was very concerned about, is it boring? Then he left, that was in December of 08. Now, on January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And, and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people because this is going to be, God's going to show the best comeback or the best with God all things are possible ever this story this story is going to be an amazing story I actually thought that the day I quit and so I prayed I said God I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions I don't ever want to feel them that you know the desire free me from the desire and uh, I said then I'm all yours I'll do this platform that was my thing so I'll do this you know whatever you want me to do so I wake up in the morning and it's gone it was a piece it was like wow I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's gonna take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. 
And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but I nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode. When Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family. Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go. And someone introduced him to a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out, we didn't even have anything. So, divine appointment, I met this other guy, so he's gonna do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was gonna do it because he had seen so much passion, this guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script and I went to read it, they had this big professional guy had come in and he's sitting there and he's listening to me read off this script and then her and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know. This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter. That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial. It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good. <laughs> what about this one? This one here is Ruined America. Um, oh my God. So we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where I come, my comfort zone, and I just went naturally or whatever. Now on October 7, 2011, I'm living in my sister's basement, and, and this aired at three in the morning, and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on, and I'm going, wow. I'm watching myself, you know, usually I would get so uncomfortable, but I'm going, I hadn't seen it yet. I had not seen it, I had not, I couldn't watch it, so this is the first time I watched it. And it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine. Wherever you set that, you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support, yep. okay? You can turn this any way you want. You can make little balloon animals out if you want. Okay, it's going to hold. It takes six pounds of pressure to hold that. It was just all natural. That It was like, it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter, you know, infomercial and we exploded. We went from five employees to 500 in 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We were working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pillow? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset. and. And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. 
And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we, we were making them, hiring people, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And then I, and then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things, I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months. But the experts continued to tell him that his way was stupid. They're going, did you make this ad? This is this is terrible. Did you write this yourself? We can do so much better, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's the number one ad in history. I look it up. I'll put it up against any ad ever. Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. you got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time, and I, I had fell away from God. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was like, when I took in all that money, I'm going, wow, this is, you know, I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me, and everything started to just dry up, okay? And in the summer of 14, I met Kendra. And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have. It was, it was like this relationship with Jesus. And I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful. Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day. Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five-day thing where you're, uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran, and I'm going, why? But they all prayed, and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church and believe in God. And, you know, before all those times now I look back, all these chapters and all these things of my life, for me, it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God. That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith 
before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking. This could have only happened for one reason and by one man. God's blessed me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell. And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories about everything here on this show, the arts, sports, history, business, and of course, family. More than anything, family, that's one of our biggest subjects, and we've covered quite a number of divorce stories. Frank Abagnale's story about his family's divorce, and Frank Abagnale is the guy who was chronicled in Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. Well, wait till you hear his story about his family's divorce and the consequences. We know there are all kinds of reasons to have divorces, some good, some not so good, but it's a painful thing to go through. And with that, we bring you a letter written and performed by a young lady studying at the University of Illinois. Her name is Carly Konich. And the title of the letter, To the Stepfather I Didn't Want or Deserve, But Desperately Needed. To the stepfather I didn't want or deserve, but desperately needed. I never planned on my parents not being together, and I certainly never planned on having a stepfather. The idea of seeing my mother love someone other than my father brought tears to my eyes. When you entered my life, I hated you without even getting to know you. In my eyes, you were attempting to fill the place of my father, and that broke my heart. My sadness came across as anger, and I took it all out on you. I had no interest in making things easy for you. I resisted your presence with everything that I had. My mother was my best friend, and to have someone else competing for her attention brought out the worst in me. For that, I would like to say that I am sorry. I cannot believe that you stuck around despite the fact that I made your life a living hell. You never ran. You stayed and loved my mother through it all. You even showed love for me, despite how awful I was to you. I guess that's when it really hit me. You weren't a monster at all. You were a kind, patient, loving man who was ready to do anything to make my mother happy. You were consistently there for both me and my mother on our best days and our worst days. You gave me the fatherly advice and guidance that I did not ask for but desperately needed. You blessed me with not only your presence in my life, but also the presence of your children. 
I don't know if I could survive a day without any of you. You are my family now and forever. I never thought that such a happy ending could come from such a painfully hard situation. I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. You have taught me how to be there for those who need you, how to be patient, and how to love with no limitations. My life has been enhanced by your presence, and I would not change that for anything. Thank you for being the stepfather I did not deserve, but desperately needed. And thank you for that, Carly. And just what a beautiful, beautiful letter. And and thanks to that stepfather of yours. What a what a man. And I think all men would like to have a letter written to them by someone young about them. So thanks for that. And with that, we move to one of our favorite regulars on the show. It's time for Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Being Serious. We have a philosophy of that we take our work seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. And that comes from just my personality. It's the personality of the founder, and it's embedded now in the DNA of the company. Our uh, biggest holiday is uh, Halloween, uh, which we celebrate every year, and virtually everyone, I'd say, dresses up for Halloween. We have all day parading around in costumes, getting videoed, because people have to vote on which costumes are the best. We have big prizes, thousands of dollar prizes for individual costumes, for small group contests, for large group contests. And now we do it. For what reason do we do that? Well, partly it's because I like to act childishly, okay? I'm not, I, always, when I, from the time I was a kid, when other people were looking forward to their next birthday, to getting older, I said, no, I don't want to get older. It's a bad thing. I love it exactly where I am today as a six-year-old or as a nine-year-old. And I've always had that, uh, that uh, uh, attitude about staying young. Now, of course, our bodies tend to get a little older every year, maybe by one year every year, but that doesn't mean your attitude has to be. And uh, so playing hard and having fun has always been a part of my character. But it's also useful for business. When people see that the chairman and the CEO dress up as uh, uh, crash dummies or as uh, getting back to the future uh, characters, when they see me as a top banana in a banana suit or top dog dressed as a hot dog, when they see that, they realize that I'm just another person. 
I happen to have more authority than they do uh, because I started the company. But other than that, we are all in this together. And the fact that, that we dress up and make fun of ourselves, we even cross-dress, that's part of the culture of the company too. Uh, and, and that's before it became popular to do it, right? matter of fact. When you see that the, your executives are doing these things, the next day you see them in the cafeteria, you're more likely to be able to walk up to them and feel comfortable to talk to them, right? Even though they may not be in costume. Because the day before you were interacting with them as another character out of, uh, out of a movie or of a, out of a cartoon. So it works great for our business. I'm not sure it would work great in every business, but my worry is to make sure that Cognex is the best possible place to work. Well, and it sounds like it, Dr. Bob, and I'll be broadcasting an address coming up soon. I just won't say when. I know, that just repulsed our entire staff here. This is Our American Stories, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. stories and today we want to bring your attention to an amazing documentary that is currently available on Netflix and Hulu a documentary that will make you laugh think and cry and this segment you're about to hear is a preview of what you'll see in this mind-opening film and we love to bring you things from the culture and pass them along to you and you may have a life we don't we love checking out all this stuff and sharing it with you Alive Inside is a joyous cinematic exploration of music's capacity to reawaken our souls and uncover the deepest parts of our humanity. It chronicles the astonishing experiences of individuals suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's around the country who have been revitalized through the simple experience of listening to music. So what's the big deal? Why would anyone go out of their way to give someone with Alzheimer's an iPod? Take a listen to this 90-year-old woman who tragically can't remember much about her life on this earth when she's asked about her childhood. How old are you? How old am I? Yeah. I'm 90 years old. What was life like when you were a little girl? Oh, God, I've forgotten so much. I've forgotten so much. I'm very sorry. Oh, it's okay. What have you forgotten? I've forgotten... What I used to do after I became a young lady, I've forgotten so much. I can't remember. I've been here, I've been here, I've been here 90 years. And if I could remember, I would tell you, but I don't, I can't remember. Dan Cohen is founder and director of Music and Memory, which promotes the use of digital music players with individualized playlists to improve the quality of life for elders. Listen to what happens when he plays this same woman, some Louis Armstrong. I want to try an experiment. What? I want you to try and let the music take you back into your memories, to travel back into time. And then we'll stop, and you can tell me where it took you. Um, okay. um, you ready? Mm-hmm. 
What you just heard was an instant illumination of this woman's soul through the power of music. What a great God moment. But you need to watch this documentary called Alive Inside to get the full effect. Seeing the faces, the body language of elderly people who instantly light up upon hearing the music of their youth is something we all need to witness for ourselves. Next, we're introduced to another old-timer named Henry. Henry is borderline catatonic and doesn't recognize his daughter. Henry, speak to me. I want to hear your voice. Can you talk to me? So let me hear you. Tell me your full name. Henry has dementia and he needs total assistance with all his activities of daily living. Hi, Papa. Huh? How you doing? Huh? Who am I? I'm your daughter. Daughter? Mm-hmm. Which one? Wait a minute. I got too many. I don't know. Listen to Henry after a nurse puts headphones on his ears. He asks if he can sing along. Then a nurse describes his reaction. I, I'm supposed to sing with this? You can if you like. When I first met him, he was very isolated, and he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people, and then when I introduced the music to him, this is his reaction every since. <laughs> Everyone in that room with Henry was blown away by his reaction. Dan Cohen, the man behind this effort to give music back to the elderly who suffer from dementia, talked to Henry right after he listened to that song. Here is their remarkable conversation. Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Did you like music when you were young? Yes, yes, I went to big dances and things. What was your favorite music when you were young? Well, I guess uh, Cab Calloway was my number one band guy. I liked it. Isn't that incredible? This man couldn't recognize his own daughter, but after just a few minutes of listening to an iPod, could remember his favorite musician, Cab Calloway, as he burst out into a scat. Henry was then asked what his favorite song was, and what the favorite part of his life was. Listen to what happens next. What was your favorite song? Oh, I'll be home Christmas. Oh, 
favorite part of your life? What was your favorite part of your life? My life? It was part of my life was riding a bicycle. Grocery board. What did you like about riding a bicycle? That's why I made my money. You need no money. Isn't that true about all the favorite parts of our life? So what's going on here? This film goes on to explain that music is recorded in the part of our brain that is the last place dementia effects. So why isn't this being implemented in nursing homes across this country and everywhere? Dan Cohen explains the problem. I can sit down and write out a script for a thousand dollar a month antidepressant. No problem. Nobody asks any questions. If I want to provide a person with a forty dollar personal music system, that will take a lot of work. Because personal music doesn't count as a medical intervention. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of a side thing over here. The real business, trust me, is in the pill bottle. Open for me. All Our healthcare right. system imagines the human being to be a very complicated machine. And we figured out how to turn the dials. Blood pressure, oh, turn that down, you know? Blood sugar, oh, turn that down. We have medicines that can adjust the dials. We haven't done anything medically speaking, to touch the heart and soul of a patient. One more of the many elderly in this film suffering from dementia is a woman named Mary Lou. Here, she struggles to identify kitchen utensils before she is given an iPod. Listen to what she says immediately after listening to the Beach Boys. What do you call that? Um, it's a... For, uh, Knife? No, fork or spoon. Would you like to hear some music? Would you like to listen to some music? Sure, why not? Here you go. I don't know how to do this. Straight over your ears and your head. Perfect. See a little button in the middle? That's that? Yeah, right in the middle. Click it once. Stop the music. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Okay. So there's uh, tears of joy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just want to make sure. Oh, yeah. That's the best thing I've ever, ever had, this thing. It can't get away from me if I'm in this place. I thought you were going to grow wings. I was trying. I, I, you... <laughs> <laughs> This incredible documentary concludes with a beautiful message on the importance and power of music in all of our lives. And we know, we know that to be the case. What a remarkable thing this man did. We know music has the power to change lives. We know it triggers memory. But this guy went out and did it. And let me tell you, if you want to help or you want to know more or learn more, go to 
musicandmemory.org. That's musicandmemory.org. There you can learn more about Dan Cohen's remarkable mission to bring music to those of us who need it more than ever. What a selfless, creative, and generous way to honor those in their final days. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, but this one's unusual. It's the story of an abandoned boat, and it comes from our own Jesse Edwards. The slow, choppy waters erratically splash up against the obstruction, an offbeat rhythm banging into an island of rusted steel. As the Ohio River flows towards the Mississippi, its waters make their way through the American Midwest. Roughly 25 miles downstream from the Cincinnati, some of the water diverts into a gap on the southern shore into a creek and up against a ship that seems to have docked for the very last time. It's a vessel that fought in two world wars, served as a yacht, set the scene in a pop star's music video, carried one of the world's greatest minds, and shuttled tourists around the nation's largest city all before it found itself left to be forgotten by time and history in these murky waters. It's been over a century since the ship was originally launched in 1902. It's a vessel that's been known by many names. The most recent one, however, can still be found in the faded paint on its hull, the Circle Line 5. To understand why the Circle Line 5 is significant and just how the hell it ended up in a creek near Cincinnati, we need to start at the beginning in Wilmington, Delaware. On April 12, 1902, the ship was launched as the Celt, commissioned as a luxury yacht. She was 186 feet long and steam-powered. After changing owners, she was renamed the Sachem. When World War I broke out in 1914, German submarines known as U-boats patrolled the Atlantic, hoping to sink as many Allied shipments as possible. For the first time in modern warfare, the submarine played a key role. It was a deadly and effective weapon that could strike without any kind of warning and was nearly impossible to counter. As America prepared to join the war on the Allied side, the U.S. Navy realized that they needed to find new ways to counter the below-water threat, both in the war zone and at home. So the Navy began renting small, fast, private craft that could potentially outmaneuver and outspot enemy submarines. In July of 1917, the Navy acquired the Sachem and dubbed it the USS Sachem. The ship was outfitted with depth charges to sink submerged U-boats and machine guns to counteract torpedoes. New and creative ways to defend against them needed to be developed. So they turned to Thomas Edison. Edison was one of the world's most profound inventors and businessmen. He seemed to be the perfect guy to come up with a creative way to destroy submarines. But in order to do that, he needed a ship. So the Navy gave him the USS Satcham. Edison would use the vessel to conduct experiments around New York Harbor before eventually sailing it to Key West, Florida and the Caribbean. Edison's relationship with the Navy was tumultuous. In a 1923 article, he told a newspaper reporter that the Navy pigeonholed every invention he offered. With the war ending in November 1918, so did Edison's funding. He returned to his other business ventures and the Navy returned the sachem to the owner they had been renting it from. As the post-World War I years went on, the Sachem changed hands a few times, eventually becoming a recreational fishing vessel under the command of Captain Jacob Jake Martin, 
of Brooklyn, New York. Martin had taken advantage of the Great Depression when he purchased the Sachem in 1932. Luxurious yachts that had once been available only to the upper crust of society would now be purchased at ridiculously low prices. Like many captains at the time, Martin opened his recently purchased ship to anyone willing to pay $2 to board it. Some came to party, others came to catch fish to feed their families. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. The next day, America declared war on Japan. On December 11th, Germany and Italy declared war on America, to which the United States reciprocated. America's involvement in World War II had begun. Faced with an even greater U-boat threat than before, America was once again in need of ships that could guard the home front. The Navy rented the Sachem a second time, re-outfitted it with armaments, and christened it the USS Finnekite in July 1942. The Finnekite acted as a training and patrol vessel. Anti-submarine tactics had advanced drastically since Edison had been on board. By now, sonar was in practical use. During the day, the Finnekite would take on sailors training to use sonar equipment. By night, she patrolled Key West Harbor. Eventually, the ship was assigned to guarding Long Island Sound in New York, where she served out the rest of the war before being returned to Captain Martin and reverting to her original name of Satchel. Right before the war's end in the summer of 1945, several tourism cruise lines merged to form Circle Line Sightseeing Cruises in New York City. Anxious to add more boats to the new company, the Sachem was purchased from Captain Martin and became the flagship of a new Circle Line fleet. The Sachem was then renamed the Sightseer. Over the years, Circle Line and its vessels provided millions of visitors with tours around New York City. At some point, Sightseer came to be known as the Circle Line 5 and received the paint scheme that can be seen faded on the abandoned ship's hull today. Eventually, the Circle Line company's operation grew into a demand that the Circle Line 5 could no longer meet. Sometime in the early 1980s, with the ship having been in continued use for nearly eight decades, she was cut from the Circle Line fleet and left in an abandoned pier in New Jersey. Enter Robert Miller in 1986. A Cincinnati resident, Miller was looking to buy an old steam yacht and had come across the Circle Line 5 sitting idle in New York's Hudson River. The vessel owner at the time sold it to Miller for $7,500. Miller told the Kentucky Inquirer in 2011 that it took him 10 days to repair the boat and to get it seaworthy again. One day while working on the ship, a limousine pulled up to the dock. A representative of Madonna greeted him, asking to use the Circle Line 5 as a background element in one of the widely popular pop star's upcoming music videos. The ship ended up having a cameo role in the video for Madonna's single, Papa Don't Preach. Now the ship is clearly identifiable in one of the brief scenes from the video. If you can stomach just how bad of a song it is, and see for yourself on YouTube. On July 4th, 1986, President Ronald Reagan symbolically relit the torch of the Statue of Liberty at the iconic landmark's rededication ceremony. My fellow Americans, we're known around the world as a confident and a happy people. Tonight, there's much to celebrate and many blessings to be grateful for. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important and just as American to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Let the celebration begin. 
The day was celebrated with musical performances and a massive fireworks display. Miller and his Circle Line 5 were there, loaded with party-goers enjoying the celebration. Not long after, Miller planned to bring the ship back to a plot of land he had purchased in northern Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati. It would prove to be the ship's final voyage. Miller and a small group navigated the ship from New York City, through the Great Lakes, down the Mississippi River, and onto the Ohio River. He turned the boat down a creek into a small tributary of the Ohio on his property. The vessel has sat in that spot ever since. The ship has been sitting here for so long. Vegetation is growing on its decks. The porthole glass has been busted and rusted out. Stairs that once led to a sightseeing deck now lead to nowhere. She sat abandoned and decaying in these murky waters for nearly 30 years. 110 years since the boat launched in Delaware, came to a final resting place in a creek outside of Cincinnati. After countless passengers and two world wars, the ship itself has become a sight to behold. In itself is a ruin of the past, a symbol of history in a condition that doesn't seem fit for the story it left behind. After everything the Celt, Sachem, Fenikite, Sightseer, Circle Line 5 saw in its day, it's now something for us to see, to marvel at. A ruin of the past, hidden in a creek. And great job as always, Jesse, and I want to see a picture of that, of that boat if we can. I'd love to see it. And got a visual in my own head, and I'm sure you do too. And send again, send us your stories, and we take them from everywhere. This one is just something Jesse had been thinking about. We'd love to know what you're thinking about. Story of a boat, the story of a song. You name the kind of story, we do it here on Our American Stories. The Satchem, the Finnecite, the Satchem again, the Circle Line, and of course the Sightseer, and then the Circle Line 5. That one ship's many lives, all told here on Our American Stories. our American stories and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings four brothers and three sisters ages 12 to 4 together that were separated throughout four different foster homes Sophia and Deshaun Olds both 33 got married in 2004 and they admit that as newlyweds they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military both veterans who served overseas in Iraq to think about starting a family This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oles. And I'm Sophia Oles. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. 
we have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now, and it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children. It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because you know, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor. Children's Church, ages what? Four to 12. Always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had wrote on the back of it, um, adopt a child on there. And then it was just no surprise that the story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day of Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping, and we saw the story on Facebook. These seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms, and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah. And once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do? What can we do? And they did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent 
is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we picking both have oranges. to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it's more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story.
And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. They didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. We'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too. 